Hey, good morning, Coastal Church. Pastor Sean here. So great to see you. Thank you for letting me interrupt your service. Uh, this summer, we're going to be doing a great series, 1 John, so that you may know. And what is it that we want you to know? Well, 1 John teaches us the objective truth of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John tells us that he was a part of Jesus' ministry. He saw him here on earth. He heard him teach. He saw him bodily rise from the grave. And, and so our faith is objectively true. But he also teaches us that since it's objective is true, Christ is in us. It's subjectively true as well, that Jesus transforms us from the inside out. So that if we love God, we're going to love others. If we love God as He is light, we're going to walk in the light. And it's going to encourage us in, to walk in holiness and righteousness. So really, really excited about this summer series. And uh, we do these summer series through the books of the Bible so that while you're on vacation, you can tune in. You don't want to miss a week. And so I know a lot of you are going to be vacationing this summer. I hope you have a great time of rest with your family and things like that. But don't miss a week of Coastal Church. So we're really excited for you to join us this summer in our new series, First John. Have a great Sunday. I want to turn it back over to your campus pastor. God bless you. Well, good morning again, Coastal Church. I want to invite you to grab a Bible and turn with me to First John. First John is where we'll spend the majority of our time today and in the weeks and months to come, taking us through August. First John is in the back of your New Testament, uh, not the Gospel of John, but the first of three letters that John, same author, wrote. Excited to dive in today. Before we do that, though, I want to share something. Amy, my wife Amy and I, we love having a show, uh, whether that be on Netflix or Peacock or Hulu or any of the streaming services that we don't pay for for ourselves because we're millennials. Um, it's like a millennial thing to not pay for your own streaming service. Uh, we just mooch off our parents. Um, if you don't get that, it's because you're a parent paying for your millennial kids' streaming services. Uh, anyway, we watched a show last summer about a football player named Manti Teo. Who's heard of Manti Teo? Show of hands. Probably half of us. Okay, Manti Teo, super famous football player about 10 years ago, uh, grew up in Hawaii, linebacker, five-star recruit coming out of high school and enrolled at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana to play college ball for the Fighting Irish and was incredible. He's a linebacker, um, an All-American, a great, great player, and by all accounts, a great kid. He had a great smile, super awesome personality. He was an easy figure for people to love. He played with tenacity on the field. It seemed like he loved people really well off it. Manti Teo, his draft stock was soaring. He was going to be a star in the NFL. Everyone loved this kid because he was really kind. He smiled a ton. He was easy to love. And so he crushed it at Notre Dame his freshman year, sophomore year, junior year. And then as he headed into his senior year, his last year of eligibility before declaring for the NFL draft, he started to open up more and more about his personal life. And in interviews, he started talking about his girlfriend, a lady named Lenny Kakua. He talked about how he played for Lenny and he dedicated his games to Lenny. She was his inspiration, his rock, his everything, his grounding. He loved this girl, was clearly planning a future with her. Senior year rolls around and actually tragedy struck Mantateo. And one day he lost his grandmother and his girlfriend Lenny was in a car accident and hospitalized in critical condition. Um, awful day for him. And, and when Lenny was in the hospital, she was then diagnosed with leukemia um, and it looked life-threatening. 
And so Metateo plays a game that day, goes out, intercepts two passes, and gives this emotional, tear-filled interview where he talks about losing his grandmother, and he talks about his girlfriend who had just been in this car accident, now dealing with this leukemia diagnosis. And the heart of the nation just broke for this kid. You could see him crying during the interview. It was awful and heart-wrenching. You see this kid, and you just feel for him. And all around the country, prayer groups popped up for Lenny. Hashtag pray for Lenny. People were now invested in the romantic life of Teo. They wanted his girlfriend, the one that he played for, to get better. A couple months went by, and Lenny died. She passed away. And that day, Teo has a game. He goes out, intercepts more passes, gives this emotional interview, dedicates his season to his lost grandmother, now his lost girlfriend. Everyone feels for him. This is a heartbreaking story. Until a couple months go by, and Lenny calls Teo after dying. And Manti's thinking, what in the world? What's going on? The story starts to come out little by little, Lenny never existed. And if you're familiar with the Manti Teo story, you know where this is going. There's a term that's used called catfishing, which is where someone creates an online profile pretending to be someone else and basically tricks or hoodwinks someone into thinking that they're real. They build a relationship with this person. That's what had happened to Manti Teo. And Amy and I are watching this documentary, getting his side of the story. And honestly, my heart broke for him. When the story came out that his girlfriend, who millions of people had prayed for, wasn't real, people thought that Manti Teo was some kind of fraud that he was making it up, hoping to garner sympathy from the watching world. Not true. He was fooled. And in that moment, when it all came out, Manti Teo was humiliated. Like, how did he date a girl for two years without ever even meeting her? He was humiliated. He lost a lot. His draft stock plummeted. He was drafted in the second round. People thought he was going to be drafted in the first. There were real-life consequences for this young man. I was watching this on on Netflix and thinking, in a moment of real honesty, transparency, transparency, vulnerability here, how many of us do this with our relationship with God, where we have this relationship that we think is real, that we're banking our lives on the fact that it's real, but in our like deep, most honest moments, we think, what if it's not real? Like that's what happened to Manti Teo. And I'll be honest, as a pastor, I don't doubt the reality of God, but there have been times in my Christian life where I've wondered if I've done enough to be saved, if I'm truly in Christ. And I think that's something that we've all, if you're in Christ, wrestled with at different points in your Christian life, especially when there are times where sin seems to be winning more than it's losing where you sin and whether it's the same sin for the 10th time or some new sin that Satan has tempted you with, you think, I'm supposed to be a Christian. How does this sin have this much power over my life? Am I really a Christian? Am I really changed? Do I really know Jesus? On that day, when the actions of our hands and the motives of our hearts are laid bare for all to see, are we really going to be in Christ? Is it really real? I think if we're honest, some of us, if not all of us, have doubted that at times. I have a good word for us this morning, church. John writes to this specific issue. We'll have it up on the screen. 1 John 5.13. Look at these words. The word of God. I write these things to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In this battle over assurance, whether or not we're truly in Christ, John speaks powerfully. He writes, so that we may know. This is John's purpose statement in his letter to Christians in Ephesus, people that he pastored. He's writing this letter, which we'll study together all summer as a church across every campus, so that we might know that we have eternal life, so that we can be sure that we are in Christ. John wants us to know, and this is a common theme for him. He shared the same idea in the gospel he wrote after spending three years with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Look at how he closes his gospel account in John 20, verse 31. John says this, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants us to know that we have eternal life, Now, we obtain eternal life by believing in Jesus. And and by default here, church, God wants us to know. that God isn't hoping that we agonize over whether or not we've done enough, over whether or not we're actually saved. No, God is kind and compassionate and gracious enough in this letter to provide us with some real, lasting assurance of our salvation. In 1 John, we see the words perceiving and knowing almost 50 times. It's a really clear theme throughout this letter. Now, how he provides this assurance is really fascinating. We're going to see in just about every chapter of this epistle that John writes from a dualistic worldview. Here's what I mean by that. According to John, we are either walking in darkness or walking in the light. We are either of the world or not of this world, of the flesh or of the spirit, living a lie or loving the truth. There's no middle ground in this letter. There isn't a category of a Christian who's half in or half out. John provides us with some assurance based off of what a real Christian should look like. So here's our hope for this summer as we study this letter. We're praying two things over this church family. Number one, we want you to know that you have eternal life. We want you to know that you have eternal life. We want you to experience the assurance that John offers followers of Jesus, that we wouldn't fear that manti teo moment, that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are chosen, that you are loved, forgiven, accepted, and redeemed by God. Not perfect, but purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And Over the course of this series, God's word will challenge you, no doubt, but ultimately it will be a comfort. And if you don't know God, our hope is that you would learn how to know him, how to obtain eternal life. This book, 1 John, reads like a mirror. Similar to our time in the book of James last summer, there will be weeks in this series this summer where John, with all the pastoral sensitivity in the world, describes the marks of true Christians. And in a gathering this size, I'm trusting that there's some of us in here who will hear those marks of a true Christian and realize this isn't what my life looks like. I don't know that I'm actually in Christ. If that's you, my hope is that you would be saved this summer. That God would use his word, the preaching of the word over the next few weeks and months to redeem you, to draw you to himself in a life-changing way. That you would come to see Jesus as not part of your life, but your entire life. God did that last summer with the book of James. There's a brother in our congregation, and I asked him if I could share this. His name is Art, and he serves on the security team week in and week out. And Art has been a part of Coastal for over 10 years, a decade. And last summer, 
through the normal preaching of the word through the book of James, he realized that he wasn't truly saved. After sitting in these seats for 10 years, and now Art is a changed man. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he's a new creation. He had an incredible baptism testimony back in September. It's incredible what God can do through the preaching of his word. And we're asking and trusting that God might do it again. The second thing that we're hoping for this summer as we study 1 John is we want you to experience the love of God, to actually experience it in fresh and real and genuine ways. We see the word love almost 50 times in 100 or so verses. That means on average, almost every other verse in 1 John talks about love. 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16 highlight this by stating God is love. And it's our hope that over the course of this series, we wouldn't just learn more about God's love, gain head knowledge about God's love, but that we would actually experience God's love in transformative ways. The difference between learning about it and experiencing it is really significant. It's like looking at a picture of the Grand Canyon or standing on the edge of it and taking it all in. Every chapter, every verse in this book reminds us of the experiential love of God. And we'll see, we'll even see this today, that the love of God isn't meant to stop with us. We are meant, created by God, to be vessels and conduits of his grace to reach the lost and dying world around us. So, verse by verse, let's hit the first four verses this morning of 1 John. This is the Word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. All right, here's what our time in the Word will look like. We're going to see from this passage two truths about Christ two truths about Jesus Christ, which will lead us, Lord willing, to two practical implications for our lives. So four verses, four points. Two truths about Christ, two implications for our lives. Number one, Christ has existed eternally. You have this in your notes. Christ has existed eternally. Look at verse two. Writing about Jesus, John writes, the life was made manifest, which just means made known, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. And underline this next part, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And so Jesus, this one whom John calls eternal life, was with the Father. That's so significant for us. It means that Jesus wasn't created, that Jesus never had a beginning, that Jesus never came into being. He always has been and always will be God. And if these words sound familiar, it's because John wrote something very similar in the introduction to his gospel. John 1, a passage that many of us have memorized. In the beginning was the what, church? Word. Beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so in our text today, the apostle begins his letter in the same way. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning— So Jesus, described as the Word in John 1 and the life in 1 John 1, 
has always existed with the Father. He is from the beginning. When the book of Genesis opens up within the beginning God, Jesus was there. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who through whom all things were created. And praise the Lord, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a good truth we see all over the scriptures. But here's the thing. When John wrote this letter towards the end of the first century, there was a significant group of people that were claiming to be Christians, but denying that Jesus was God and denying that he had existed eternally. And this is where church history gets really, really interesting. I know that for some of you, you hear the phrase church history and you immediately zone out. What could possibly be more boring? But listen, church history is family history for us. So if you're into Ancestry.com or 23andMe, this is going to get really, really good here in a second. This teaching that Jesus was created by God, a heretical teaching, has some staying power. And it caused real problems in the early church. In the third century, there was a pastor named Arius who held this position. And Arius was really persuasive. He was a really, really good communicator. And at one point, it looked like the majority of the capital C church was going to confess and believe that Jesus was created, that he hadn't always existed. For the record, this is what Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. Now, of course, this is a heretical teaching. And God was always going to protect the theological integrity of his church. And so God raised up leaders to combat this heresy, which would go on to be called Arianism. One of these men who stood up to protect and preserve truth was a brother named Nicholas, who in one heated debate actually stood up in front of everyone and slapped Arius. Like across the face, he slapped a heretic. Church history gets really, really good because we know Nicholas. He went on to be called St. Nicholas. Anyone? Santa Claus. Santa Claus stood up in a third century council and slapped a heretic. Yet this makes its way into no Christmas songs today. <laughs> he stood up for truth. There's another young brother, a pastor named Athanasius, who despite being exiled five different times, kept coming back, threatened with death five different times, kept coming back. He kept clinging to the truth that Jesus was God and that he'd always existed with the Father. And he did so because he rightly understood the point of 1 John 1, that the eternal God had visited his people, that he had come in the flesh, and then in his hands he held the keys to eternal life. Here's why this is so important for us, Coastal. Because Jesus has existed eternally. Jesus can offer us eternal life. Connect the dots. The life that Jesus offers us is eternal in two primary ways. Number one is letter A. You have it in your notes. Jesus offers us eternal life, quantity of life. Offers us quantity of life. So unlike Jesus... Everyone within the sound of my voice had a beginning. We were all created, and we were created not just for this life, but for the life to come. Look at verse 2 again in 1 John. John is proclaiming not a temporary life, but an eternal one, a never-ending one. We had a beginning, but we'll never have an ending. Now, this can be a, a difficult concept for us to wrap our minds around, this idea of eternity. We can say eternity lasts forever and ever, but what does that really mean? Pastor Sean used a great illustration about eight or nine years ago. I was a CNU student. I did my undergrad at CNU, and I sat right there in the building on 17, helped 
Coastal moved to this building. I've loved Coastal for a long time. I served in student ministry. All good. Part of my Coastal testimony, though, is that sitting week in and week out under the teaching of Pastor Sean has blessed me richly. Like, this brother has formed much of who I am. And there was one sermon illustration that he used to describe eternal life that I'm just going to rip off today because it's been like nine years. So Pastor Sean held up a pencil. Look at this pencil, about a centimeter thick. Imagine that this pencil is your life. Your life is this thick, one centimeter. And depending on circumstance, we might have 75 years. For some of us, we'll have more. For some of us, we'll have much less. And we invest everything into this pencil. We worry about this pencil. We try to protect this pencil. We take care of this pencil. We're wrapped around this pencil. Again, a centimeter thick. Now, I'm going to go over here and hold it against the wall. This pencil, centimeter thick, is our lives. Hold it against the wall. It's our pencil right here. Every other inch of blank space on this wall in this entire room is eternity. Every inch. Like, look around the room. Everyone do it right now. Move your heads. Look around the room. This room represents eternity. We just moved to Williamsburg two weeks ago, and we did some paintings, talked about square footage. I know square footage now. There's a lot of square feet in this room. A lot of square feet. And this room represents eternity, yet we are so consumed with the pencil. Now, go around the room again. Now, go around the room like 10 more times. See how many people I can make dizzy this morning. Listen, imagine going around the room a billion more times. 10 billion more times compared to this centimeter. So many times around this room. And get this, church. After 10 billion times around the room, eternity for us will just be beginning. It'll just be beginning. Yet we worry so often about the pencil. Yet everything we do in this pencil sets us up for the next 10 billion years. Listen, if you are just checking out Coastal Church this morning, if you're new to Christianity, here's what I want you to hear. You will live forever. You were created for eternity. You had a beginning, you will not have an ending. Jesus offers us quantity of life. But get this, quantity of life is not just reserved for Christians. Everyone has quantity of life. Which leads us to letter B, quality of life. Jesus offers us quantity of life. He offers, also offers us quality of life. John 17 verse 3, Jesus says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life isn't just where we'll spend eternity, it's how we will spend eternity. And the Bible is really clear. Full, biblical, joy-filled, eternal life is available to everyone. It's available to those who know God. That's what John 17 is saying. For the Christian, eternal life begins the moment we trust in Christ. Colossians 3 says, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. There's a mystery in that to be sure, but it's a true statement from scripture. And so for us, for the Christian, eternal life will be this never-ending paradise 
where each moment is better than the last, where our joy will increase exponentially as we behold the glory of God and enjoy fellowship with him untainted by the presence of sin. And since God is infinite, we'll forever be discovering new and glorious aspects of his character. Heaven will never grow stale for us as Christians. One billion trips around the room, we'll still be discovering new and joy-filled things about God. But listen, church, this life, this glory, glorious, joy-filled eternal life is only available to those who have trusted in Jesus. It's only available to those who have had their sin forgiven because they've acknowledged and put their faith in the fact that Jesus is an eternal God, that he's come down to visit man, and that his work on the cross and his subsequent resurrection was sufficient to offer a covering for our sin. Listen, if you're new to Coastal or you're just checking out this Christianity thing, here's what we need you to know today, you will live forever and your quality of eternal life is dependent on what you have decided about Jesus. It's decided about Jesus. All of us, myself included, have sinned and separated ourselves from a relationship with God. The Bible says we're all with sin. We've all separated ourselves from fellowship with God. And God didn't leave us in that place. He could have but he looked upon our helpless estate and had mercy on us by sending his son Jesus to live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death on the cross. And then three days later, we just sang about it. Death could not hold him. He rose again, offering us this chance to have reconciliation with our creator and glorious, joy-filled, eternal life. But listen, if we choose to reject Jesus, if we choose to reject this offer of forgiveness, the Bible is clear, we will live forever But our eternal life will be spent paying the penalty for our sin, separated from the presence of God. And so, don't pay for your own sin. Trust in the one who has made a way for it to be paid for. That's you this morning, and the steps are clear. The Bible calls us to repent of our sin, to believe in the message of the gospel, that Jesus is God, that he died on a cross for our sin, that he rose bodily from the grave, Believe in that message. Receive Christ into your life and you will be saved. It's point number one for us this morning. Christ has existed eternally and therefore can offer us eternal life, both in quantity and in quality. Second truth that we'll see in this text. Christ has existed historically. So Christ has existed eternally. He also existed historically. Jesus was Fully God, not the created, but the creator since eternity past. But he was also fully man. A man who lived at a real time in history, in a real place. He lived and walked, ate and drank and slept. And we refer to him often as Christ. I even have him as Christ in your notes this morning. But remember, Christ was not his name. It was a title. In the Greek, Christ just means anointed one. His actual name was Jesus They called him Jesus of Nazareth because that's a real place where he lived. Now, why emphasize this? Because John does. Look back with me at our text today. In the first verse alone, in verse 1, we see four different verbs. Jesus was heard, seen, looked upon, and touched. John is making the empirical reality of Jesus, the historical reality of Jesus, very clear in this passage. He's talking about the incarnation, that Jesus, while fully eternal God, chose to take on a very real human form. 
And in so doing, John's combating another false teaching that was spreading across the church in the first century. There were those who argued that Jesus simply looked like a human, but wasn't one. That he was human in appearance, but really just fully God. Now, here's what this false teaching allowed people to do. It's really subtle, so I want you to track with me here. By emphasizing the concept of Christ over the reality of the physical person of Jesus, people could get away with simply talking about theology and affirming theology without having to actually submit their lives to Jesus as Lord, without dealing with what he actually said and what he actually did. Basically, it's easier to talk about the idea of Christ than to fully surrender your life to Jesus. And if we're honest, I think that we sometimes do this too in our own lives. John Piper wrote on this. I want to quote him at length because I found him very helpful here. Piper said this, Many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a merely spiritual reality. But when we preach Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, and that preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. I don't think it's so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the incarnation. The stumbling block is that if this doctrine is true, Every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he said is law. Everything he did is perfect. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says that we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Listen, church, we cannot separate the concept of Christ from obeying the person of Jesus because it can so easily become a crutch for us to excuse actual disobedience to him as Lord. Let me make this really practical for you. It is easier for us to believe in the miracle of the incarnation that it is for husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's easier to confess that Jesus is Lord, to believe that he's fully God, than it is to stop watching pornography or to pursue sexual purity with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It's even easier to believe in the bodily resurrection than it is to share Christ with a coworker. Why is this? Because intellectual belief doesn't cost us anything. Actual submission to Jesus costs us everything. So here's the point, church. We don't want to be people that talk about theology so much that it doesn't impact our lives. If our theology doesn't make us more loving, it's bad theology. So we have to take an honest look at our lives this morning. Does our way of living match up with what we say we believe? It's really easy to act like a Christian in this room, in this building. But when we drive out of the parking lot today, do we think, speak, act, live like the world? Or do we live like ambassadors for Christ, modeling Christ-likeness, not perfectly, but genuinely in every aspect of our lives? That's why John is hammering home this point that belief in the idea of a Christ and obeying the person of Jesus are one in the same. First John 2 verse 6, John says this, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Look even how 
He begins the letter in our passage today in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. John so easily could have said, him who is from the beginning. Could have made it personal, but he didn't. He said that which was from the beginning. Why? It's because John wanted us to see this unbreakable connection between the theological concept of Christ as the word of life and Jesus as the Lord of our lives. So that's number two. Christ has existed historically. And that means that we'll be held accountable in how we live. We'll be held accountable for how we respond to the things he actually said and actually did. All right. Therefore, I want to pull out two implications for our lives. Number three, we have fellowship with God. Number three, we have fellowship with God, church. Because of the incarnation, because Jesus is fully God, existed eternally, and fully man existed historically, because he wrapped himself in flesh, we now have fellowship with God. Look at verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus. And there are two primary ways we experience this fellowship. Letter A, we experience it positionally. We experience fellowship with God positionally. We have a positional, legal fellowship with God. Here's what I mean by that. When we turn to Christ for salvation and forgiveness, we go from being rebels and enemies in the sight of God. The Bible actually calls us children of wrath in Ephesians 2 to people who have been pardoned and forgiven and justified. Our default state with God is not neutrality, it's war. And when we repent of our sin, we believe in the message of the gospel, and we receive Christ, we go from being at war with God to being at peace with God. There's an official, legal, positional status change that happens when we are found in Christ. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified, washed from our sin, forgiven completely. Forgiven is our new status before God. But not only do we have fellowship with God positionally, we have fellowship with him relationally. Letter B, we have a relational fellowship with God. I want us to see something. Had God simply chosen, church, to forgive our sin, to wipe away the debt that we owed, to declare us justified, to take us from being at war with God to being at peace with God, that would have been an unfathomable act of mercy. Like, we don't deserve that justification. God opened the prison doors which we shut in on ourselves and set us free. He declared us innocent when we were guilty, and he did so based off of the work of Jesus. Listen, that's an act of mercy. Praise God for that glorious truth that God has justified us. But God could have stopped there. God could have opened the doors of the prison and said, go out, you are free. We are now no longer at war. We are at peace. Our state with God could have gone from being enemies to neutral. Could have gone from being enemies and rebels to being at peace. But God didn't stop there. Look at Romans 8. We'll have this on the screen. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Listen, church, I want us to see this. God has not only justified us, forgiven of our sin, we're clean, washed fresh by the blood of Jesus. God didn't stop there. God took us into his own family and adopted us. We who are rebels and enemies in his sight, God said, I want you as my child. He opened the doors of the prison, didn't just let us go free. He welcomed us into his home, put us at the seat at his table that was reserved for his children. How great is the love of God for us? unfathomable mercy that God shows us in Christ. Not just forgiving us, but welcoming us into his family. We have that positional fellowship, that declared righteousness that God has given us. Now we are adopted, and the Bible says we are co-heirs with Christ. That means if you know Jesus, everything that is due Jesus is now due you. His reward, his glory, all because of the mercy of God. Finally, the second implication for our lives from this passage, number four, because of the incarnation, because the word wrapped himself in flesh, we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship with one another. When we are brought into fellowship with God, we're also brought into the family of God. We have fellowship with one another. First John 1, 3, again, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. The word for fellowship here is koinonia, which isn't the casual, lighthearted fellowship that you might get in a good neighborhood or when you root for the same sports team. No, this koinonia fellowship is a deep, genuine, affectionate joining together of people who see eye to eye on the most important things possible. And as a church family here at Coastal, we have fellowship based on the most important thing, the confession that Jesus is the Lord and God over our lives. This is letter A. We have fellowship established by shared doctrine established by shared doctrine. As we've seen, John wrote this letter to combat some pretty serious false teaching, some heresy that was infiltrating the church. And John's response to this false teaching was really interesting. I think this bears weight for our 21st century culture. John didn't want to preserve any sense of superficial unity. Like, think about where the church is today. It would have been really easy to have differing viewpoints, even if those viewpoints were heretical, and say, well, come on in. We want to be here together just for the sake of being unified. John didn't pursue superficial unity. We'll see this over and over again this summer. John very clearly uses us and them language throughout this letter. He creates a divide over doctrine. Those who acknowledge that Christ is eternal, that he came in the flesh and who are striving to live like him, those people are part of the fellowship. They're us. And those who deny those core doctrines, those core teachings, and who are not living for Christ are them. They are not part of the fellowship. Listen, this is why we take membership so seriously at Coastal. We are united, absolutely united, not in a superficial way, but in a way that says we will never apologize for the things of God written down in this book. Like we stand on this book. When culture goes awry, we stand on this book because God said it and we will obey it. That's what we are united over. We have fellowship with each other based off of shared doctrine. Shameless plug, again, for We Are Coastal, June 3rd. 
Come and be a part of that fellowship. Finally, and I'll invite the band up. We'll close with this. We have fellowship expanded through supernatural joy. Fellowship expanded through supernatural joy. Finally, verse four is how John ends our passage today. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I love this verse so much. I'm gonna read it again. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. When we truly delight in something, we can't help but share it. I was at the breakfast table a couple weeks ago uh, with my wife, two kids. Amy had just gotten a new batch of yogurt. Piper loves to eat yogurt in the mornings. Her favorite flavor right now is key lime pie. Key lime pie, everything. And Amy had gotten her some key lime pie yogurt. We knew this was going to be a big deal in the Curtis house. This is the kind of stuff you get excited about when you have young kids. Um, Anyway, we've got this key lime pie yogurt. Piper takes a bite of the yogurt, her favorite flavor. Her face lights up. She looks at me and says, Daddy, this is incredible. You have to try some. Which is if you think about it, profound. Because in my mind, if I try something that's incredible, no one else gets to try any. It's all mine. <laughs> Piper nails Johannine theology in ways that I don't. Listen, Christ has changed John's life. And so what makes John's joy complete? It's sharing Christ with other people bringing more and more people into the fellowship, seeing other people delight in the things that you delight in, increase your joy in that thing. Think about when you first became parents. You showed your picture of your first kid to everyone, everyone. And when someone was excited and delighted with you in that picture of your first kid, it increased your joy. You have number two and three, you don't show pictures of them as much. (laughs) But when you first become parents, you're so excited because you delight in being a parent. Listen, people show pictures of their pets. Not judging, I'm just saying. But when you show a picture of your pet and you get the reaction, oh, it's incredible, so cute. What happens in that moment? Your joy is increased exponentially. Listen, what is it for you? In September, men are gonna be talking about their fantasy football teams. No one cares about your fantasy football team. But when someone talks to me about their team and I actually fake interest, they light up. It's because when someone shares in the joy that you have, that joy is magnified, church. Listen, the principle applies here from 1 John 4. John delights in Jesus. And what makes his joy complete? Sharing Christ. Sharing Christ, bringing more and more people into the fellowship of God. That's what he's saying in verse 4. So here's a takeaway for you. It's the first week in this series. We're going to be in this book all summer. The takeaway for you might be to tap a younger brother or younger sister on the shoulder and say, hey, I'm not claiming to know more than you, but would you be open to meeting for coffee once a week to talk about 1 John? What if we just talked about what we're learning in, in the sermon? And it might be for you. Neighbors are outside. It's summertime. Everyone's outside more. Maybe you stay out a little bit later and you pick that neighbor And you have those seemingly pointless small talk conversations with your neighbor over and over again to establish that relationship so that you might be able to speak Christ into their lives. Listen, I'm not in the application business. The Holy Spirit will apply this truth however he wants in your lives. But listen, if you've ever led someone to Christ, God's ever given you that gracious gift, you know that there is no greater joy. There's no greater joy 
So that's what I'm praying for this church family this summer, that we would share so that our joy might be complete. It's not a selfish desire to want more and more joy. God cares about our joy in him and gives us a way to increase it by sharing Christ. So let me pray for us. I'm going to pray, and then we'll stand up and we'll sing, and we'll go to lunch. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you for your son. Christ has existed eternally. Because of that, we can live eternally, God, and we're so grateful for that gift through Jesus. We're grateful that Jesus existed historically, fully God and fully man. Help us, Lord, to reckon with what he said and did and to shape our lives in conformity to his commands. I thank you for the fellowship, God, that you have given us with yourself through Christ. Jesus is our mediator, our high priest, the one who gives us access into perfect fellowship with our creator. We're so grateful for that truth. God, thank you for the fellowship that we have at this church family, this local body of of believers, Lord. We're so grateful to be together. We're grateful to be united, not around superficial things. God, we're grateful to be united around the person and work of Jesus. We praise you, Jesus. And so I pray, God, that as we leave here today, we will go and make our joy complete. And we would go, we would live on a mission, whether it's a neighbor or a younger brother or sister in this church, that we would live on a mission to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ. Whether that's bringing someone into the fellowship or helping someone grow in the fellowship. Father, we pray that you'd use us as your hands and feet this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.